And let's all pray together. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Uh, We praise you that tonight we have the chance to come to this place and to hear uh, the words of our Lord Jesus and have them read and proclaimed in our hearing. And as we do so, Father, we ask for the Spirit's help. May he anoint and equip and enable me as I proclaim your word And may he work in each and every heart, pointing people to Jesus for your glory's sake. And in the Saviour's name, we ask these things. Amen. So tonight we're returning to our series of sermons in Luke's Gospel. And it'd be really helpful, please, if you could keep chapter 20 and those first eight verses of the chapter open in front of you. We're getting towards the sharp end of Luke's gospel now, and we've seen has journeyed to Jerusalem, and he has then ridden into the city on the back of a young donkey, on what we now refer to as Palm Sunday. And then on the next day, the Monday of Holy Week, he cleansed the temple. And so that brings us now to Tuesday. And Luke describes the events of Tuesday in chapter 20 of his gospel. And we notice that it was a day that was filled with controversy. This chapter, you'll notice, contains five different controversies, all of which took place on that one day. And so we sense, don't we, that the opposition of the religious leaders is gradually increasing and the cross is fast approaching. And as we spend our time this evening looking at these first few verses of the chapter, the first of these five controversies on that day, we'll notice the religious leaders give us something of an object lesson in the nature of unbelief. So we'll just dive in and notice four characteristics this evening of unbelief. And of course, the first one that we see here is the main one in the passage. And that is that unbelief questions Christ's authority. Unbelief questions Christ's authority. So it's Tuesday. Uh, The dust in the temple is still settling following all the upheaval of the day before when Jesus had driven out those who were selling in the temple precinct. And we might expect that Jesus would have chosen to steer clear of the temple for the next little while. But no, chapter 19 verse 47 has already told us that in that subsequent week Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. Jesus, we might say, was at home there. This is his father's house after all. About 20 years previously, as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus had spent long hours in that temple discussing theology with the teachers there. And they were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when Mary and Joseph, much to their relief, had found him there, remember he had said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's 
house, about my father's business. Twenty years or so later, this hasn't changed, has it? Jesus again is there in his father's house. And still he is about his father's business. In verse 1 of chapter 20, Luke says that Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. With just a few days to go before his crucifixion, this is what Jesus devotes his time to, preaching the gospel. That is calling men and women and boys and girls to turn away from their sin and to turn to him in faith and to receive forgiveness for their sin and become a part of his kingdom. It is, of course, what he's been preaching about throughout his whole ministry. And he preaches it still in these final days of public ministry. And it's in the midst of that preaching of the gospel that Jesus is challenged by this group of religious leaders. Luke identifies them as chief priests, scribes, and elders. And we can take it from that, that this is a group representing the Sanhedrin, that is the the Jewish ruling council, which was made up of these various types of people. And we can assume that they're there on official business as a representative group of the Jewish council of the day. They're coming to Jesus to challenge him. And the way in which they launch their challenge is by questioning Christ's authority. That's their focus, isn't it? That's their opening gambit. In their unbelief, they question Christ's authority. They came up to Jesus. Maybe they interrupted him whilst he was preaching, or maybe they waited until the end of his sermon, and they said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. What do they mean by these things? By what authority do you do these things? What are the things that they're referring to here? Of course, the context makes it very clear, doesn't it? I imagine that Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey was one of the things that they had in their mind. They knew what Zechariah chapter 9 prophesied, that Jesus, uh, that sorry, the, the promised king would come to Jerusalem riding on a young donkey. And therefore that by choosing that mode of transport, Jesus was making this implicit claim to be that long-awaited promised Messiah king. By what authority do you make that claim, Jesus? And undoubtedly, these religious leaders would have been thinking about the events that had happened the day before, on Monday, when Jesus had driven the people out of the temple, as we saw last time, acting and speaking as a prophet, pronouncing God's judgment on the temple. By what authority do you make that claim, Jesus? And likewise, the religious leaders would have been referring to the preaching of Jesus. There he was, day by day, preaching in the temple, in full view of everyone, unashamedly declaring that through faith in him, people could receive God's forgiveness and they could enter into God's kingdom. By what authority does Jesus say that? 
And it's obvious, isn't it, that the members of the Sanhedrin are claiming that Jesus really has no authority to do these things. After all, he held no official office in Judaism. He hadn't been through the regular channels of training. He didn't belong to the groups of scribes or Pharisees or such like. And the question is not, therefore, a, a genuine question. They're not genuinely trying to ascertain whether or not they should accept Jesus and his ministry. No, they're seeking to discredit Jesus. They're seeking to undermine his authority, whichever way he answers their question. On the one hand, if Jesus says that it's only by his own authority that he's saying and doing these things, then that makes him look like a maverick, doesn't it? It makes his claims to authority look ridiculous. It makes him look foolish. And yet on the other hand, if Jesus claims that actually divine authority, the authority of God himself, stands behind his ministry, well, the Sanhedrin will then have Jesus arrested on a charge of blasphemy. Either way, this question will stop Jesus, or so they think. This is their first line of attack. In their unbelief, they question Christ's authority. And you see, this is what unbelief always does, isn't it? Unbelief questions Christ's authority. It rejects his authority. It tries its level best to disprove his authority and wriggle out from underneath it. And we see it all around us in the world we live in today, don't we? You've heard these things said by your colleagues, your neighbours, your friends, in the media. How dare Jesus say that he is the only way to heaven? How dare Jesus say that he's going to judge people for how they have lived? How dare Jesus say that marriage is between one man and one woman? Who on earth has given Jesus this kind of authority to say this kind of thing? Who does he think he is, honestly? to claim such authority for himself. And at best, his claims are outdated. And at worst, they're intolerant and they're harmful. And so on and so on and so on. This is what unbelief looks like, isn't it? It questions Christ's authority in an attempt to undermine it and reject it. So how will Jesus respond to this question? And what we see as the exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders continues is that unbelief has no answer to Christ's wisdom. That's the second point this evening. Unbelief has no answer to Christ's wisdom. And the way that Jesus answers the question is by asking another question in return. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And it's important that we notice that Jesus is not sidestepping the issue here. Uh, he's not being evasive. Now the point is, if the religious leaders answer this question correctly, then it will automatically answer their own question as well. So if I can paraphrase, it's as if Jesus is saying to them, the question is not simply, what do you make of my ministry? 
But as well as that, what do you make of John the Baptist's ministry? Because you see, John the Baptist's ministry and the ministry of Jesus belong together. It was John's role in the unfolding story of the Bible to call the people of Israel to repentance and to announce to them the arrival of the Messiah. And at the height of John's ministry, people were asking him who he was and is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? This is John's reply from John chapter 1. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And then they were asking him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And so John's ministry, at the heart of which was this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, that ministry was pointing forwards to Jesus, who would fulfill all of God's promises and all of God's purposes to save his people. And when John saw Jesus coming towards him, he said very clearly, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. That's what John's ministry said. This is the Son of God. And it's a very simple connection that Jesus is making here, isn't it? If these people are going to try and reject his ministry, they must therefore inevitably also reject the ministry of John the Baptist as well, because John's ministry was all about Jesus. And the problem for the religious leaders, however, is that John the Baptist was incredibly popular. Now, by this stage, John had already been executed, and yet still the crowds of people held him in such high regard. And this puts the religious leaders in a difficult position. How on earth are they going to answer the question that Jesus has just asked them? It's a multiple choice question. There's only two options available. As Chris Tarrant would say, it's a 50-50 question. Either John's ministry was from God or it wasn't. So those religious leaders who'd heard that question uh, huddle together to discuss it. They asked the audience, if you like. They take some time to confer. What would they say? If they say that John's baptism and therefore his whole ministry was just from man. Well, the crowds would be incensed. And they might even stone them to death for saying that a true prophet was a false prophet. So the religious leaders can't just dismiss John's ministry as being a human invention. And yet at the same time, they will not say that John's ministry was from God. Because if they say that, then they will be confronted with an obvious fact. If John's ministry was from God, why did they not believe it? Why did they not repent as John 
had called them to do? Why did they not put their faith in the one to whom John's ministry pointed? Jesus himself. Why did they not accept that Jesus' ministry was filled with divine authority? And so there is nothing that they can say. The sheer wisdom of Jesus' answer has left them speechless. Their unbelief has no answer to Christ's wisdom. And we can be confident that exactly the same is true today. Proud, intelligent, sophisticated, cutting-edge unbelief ultimately has no answer to Christ's wisdom. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul goes on to say, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And as we take the word of Christ out into the world, we can be confident that ultimately Unbelief has no answer to Christ's wisdom in the preaching of the gospel. His wisdom is infinitely above anything that an unbelieving world can say in response. You know, we don't need to worry about defending the gospel, defending the word of Christ. We can simply be confident to preach it. Spurgeon captured this truth wonderfully when he he wrote these words he said a great many learned men are defending the gospel no doubt it is a very proper and right thing to do yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind it is because the gospel itself is not being preached suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion a full-grown king of beasts There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare to approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all his adversaries. These religious leaders in the temple that day thought that they had Jesus sussed. But ultimately they realized what everyone one day is going to realize that unbelief has no answer to Christ's wisdom. And then thirdly, notice this. Unbelief is a matter of the heart, not simply the mind. Unbelief is a matter of the heart, 
not simply the mind. We need to realize that when these people came to Jesus that day, they were not coming with a genuine hunger for spiritual truth. It's not like they were saying to Jesus, Jesus, we really want to believe in you. But we just don't have enough of the facts about you and your ministry yet. So please fill out those gaps in our understanding and then we can believe in you. No, their unbelief is not simply a matter of their minds. It is a matter of their hearts. It's very obvious, isn't it, as you read the story. Remember back in chapter 19, verse 47, Luke has just told us that the religious leaders were seeking a way to destroy Jesus. So as they come to speak to him now in chapter 20, their hearts are already set against him. They're hostile to him. And it becomes even more obvious that their unbelief is a matter of their hearts, not their minds simply. When you look at verses 5 and 6, that little discussion time that they have. And in that discussion time, they're not genuinely trying to arrive at an understanding of the truth in that discussion. No, they're trying to figure out a way of answering Jesus without having to acknowledge that his authority is from God. Because in their hearts, they will not humble themselves before Jesus. Despite everything that they've seen Jesus do, everything they've heard Jesus preach, they will not repent of their sin. They will not trust in him. They refuse to worship him. The problem is their hearts, not simply their minds. Now, what does all of that mean in practice? It is very important in our evangelism. Let me put it to you like this. The problem that your unbelieving friend, neighbor, colleague, relative has is not simply a lack of information about Jesus between their ears. If that were the case, then we could educate people into heaven. And just come up with a, a good persuasive presentation of gospel facts and people will be convinced to become a Christian. Simples. But you see, unbelief is not simply a matter of the mind. It is a matter of the heart. And people don't believe ultimately because they don't want to believe. Their hearts are not inclined to do so. Paul says to the Romans, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In other words, through the witness of creation, everyone knows that God exists. Everyone knows that. And through the witness of their God-given conscience, also, everyone knows that they need forgiveness from this God. And whenever a person hears the gospel, they are presented with the fact that Jesus is the Savior they need. Their problem is not a lack of information. The problem is that their heart suppresses that truth in unrighteousness. Because their hearts are in rebellion against God. 
And don't get me wrong, we do need to preach and teach gospel truth to unbelievers. Of course we do. We do need to persuade in our evangelism. But simply, merely teaching those truths to unbelievers will not produce a single genuine conversion unless or until the Spirit of God works supernaturally to regenerate that person and turn their heart back to God. And that's important in your evangelism, isn't it? Because it makes you realize that there is a lot of pressure taken off you in your personal evangelism. And it means that your friend's conversion does not depend upon the eloquence of your gospel presentation in trying to educate your friend into heaven. It's not about you mastering a a certain evangelistic technique. It's not about you coming up with a a perfect argument that's going to clinch the deal. No, their conversion depends upon God himself. Even using your imperfect witness, and God willing, my imperfect sermons as well and by his spirit making his word effective in the hearts of unbelievers and furthermore this should obviously make you pray more and more for our unbelieving friends and family because only God can turn their heart back to him unbelief is a matter of the heart not simply the mind And then fourthly and finally, notice that unbelief hides under the guise of agnosticism. Unbelief hides under the guise of agnosticism. That's what we see at the end of the story, isn't it? The religious leaders have in their unbelief, out of their hardened hearts, questioned Christ's authority. They found that they have no answer to his wisdom. They have no adequate response to Jesus' question about from where John's baptism had come. And so having conferred with one another for a while, this is the best response that they can come up with. They say, we don't know where it came from. We don't know. Now remember, these guys are meant to be the teachers of Israel. These are the religious leaders. And yet they don't have an opinion that they're ready to offer about the ministry of John the Baptist, which at that point was the biggest religious event that had taken place literally for hundreds of years. And so under the guise of agnosticism, they hide their unbelief. Agnosticism is that way of simply shrugging their shoulders and saying, we just don't know for sure. We just don't know. It is what so many people do today, isn't it? It is the postmodern answer to the question of God's existence and life after death and the way to heaven. We just don't know. How can anyone be sure? And yet the Bible is very clear. Agnosticism is just unbelief in disguise. It is the age-old sin of unbelief dressed up to look a little bit more respectable. Again, the problem is not the mind not knowing. The problem is the heart not bowing to Jesus. And Jesus will not stand for it. Look at what he he says at the end of this story. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
Now, of course, in a sense, Jesus had given a perfectly adequate answer about his authority <laughs> implicitly. He'd done that by pointing the religious leaders to John's ministry. John had already said all they needed to know about the divine authority of Jesus. And yet for now, Jesus is not going to answer their question explicitly. Because deep down, he knows that they know the answer already. They just don't like it. They're trying to hide their unbelief under agnosticism. And it doesn't fool Jesus. And I wonder tonight, what do you make of Jesus' authority? What do you make of his authority? And do you question it? Or do you bow before it? Do you take him as Lord and King? Live under his authority, his rule, his reign, his word. And trust him as saviour. What do you make of Christ's authority? And if you're not yet a Christian, well, Christ's invitation to you this evening is exactly the same as that invitation he was offering to the people in the temple that day as he preached the gospel there. And the invitation is to abandon this foolish, hard-hearted unbelief. Abandon it. And come to him in repentance and in faith. And be forgiven of all of your sin. And become a part of his kingdom. I hope you'll do that. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of Jesus that we've heard this evening. We thank you for all that we learn here about the nature of unbelief, how futile and foolish and sinful it is. And so we pray for the powerful and irresistible work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of anyone here who does not yet believe in Jesus. And likewise, we pray for the Spirit's work in the hearts of our unbelieving friends and neighbours and colleagues and relatives. Grant them the gift of saving faith, we pray. Renew their hearts, because only you can do that. And likewise, we pray that you'd give to each of us confidence and boldness as we share the gospel with those around us. Help us to speak of Christ. Help us to live our whole lives under his authority, submitting to him as Lord and King. And Father, we ask all of these things in his strong and precious name. Amen.